Today is <clears throat> June 19th, and it's Father's Day, and also Juneteenth, which marks the end of slavery in Texas. And um, I'll be reading today from The Practice of Perfection by Robert Aitken Roshi. And the focus of the talk is on one of the parameters, the perfections that presumably the fully enlightened ones um, exhibit in their daily lives all the time. And this one that we'll be working on is the third parameter, forbearance. And one could say, why at this time would forbearance be something that we would want to uh, find in our lives? Well, we're in a very critical time. We're emerging from COVID, um, racism, war, financial insecurity, gun violence, so many disturbances. And that increases the anxiety and frustration that everyone has. And we've seen it in the disorder, in the uh, even in our own lives, how short-fused we can be, and <coughs> the society in general with um, rude language, cruelty, um, and it's good to look at another of the virtues, you could say, of um, the Buddhist teaching, which we don't actually uh, discuss much in Zen because the heart of our practice is is uh, Zen and it's not necessary even to be a Buddhist to to practice Zen. But there are four virtues again, the Brahma Viharas, and one of them is equanimity. And of course equanimity is something that we really, most of us I hope, have found is the the real jewel of our practice is allows us this settling into the silence of the basic fundamental mind. Uh, but the Brahmavihara of equanimity has as its near enemy, meaning very close to it, is indifference, turning, turning away from things that we don't want to see, um, seeing suffering but saying, well, that's other, that's not me. And then the far enemy, which is very interesting, is anxiety, restlessness, intense self-concern. And many of us uh, really do struggle with anxiety. And it's good to know that it's the far enemy of equanimity, of that place of rest. So I'd like to read a little bit about the biography of Aitken Roshi. Uh, he was a contemporary of PK, of Roshi Kaplow, who was my first teacher and Wayman's first teacher. So although he may seem like an ancient dude, he's actually, um, at least within this century, he died in 2010 at the age of 93. 
Um, a, uh, James Ishmael Ford is another Zen teacher, and he tells the story of his life. And I think it's worth reading because of the trajectory um, that he took. Most of us have trajectories, and if we're lucky, we have in that trajectory a great deal of suffering, a great deal of disappointment and anguish, broken hearts. I once went to a, uh, there was a group at Chapin Mill, and they, on their last night, they have um, a kind of a happy hour thing, but they bring someone in, and this guy, he was doing some kind of um, heartwarming project with us, and he said, will someone stand up who's never had a broken heart or broken someone's heart? And no one stood up. And that's the unity that we have is brokenheartedness, really. And we can get very much involved in our own distress and anguish, but it's a universal expression of, of life because we live and because we die. Um, so it's helpful. And in this forbearance, we'll get to that in a moment, um, the symbol, the ideograph for it in Chinese is a sword over a heart. So we are all brokenhearted, but in that, out of that, breaking opens up this ability to love, which is actually our fundamental. Don't talk about it in Zen so much, but love is, is the ground. It's what keeps us coming back. Robert Aitken was, without doubt, one of the most truly venerable elders of the Western Zen way. He was born in Philadelphia in 1917, and when he was five years old, his father accepted an appointment as an ethnologist at the Bishop, British, no, the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. Except for a year and a half in California during high school, he was raised entirely in Hawaii. Before the outbreak of World War II, he spent two and a half years at the University of Hawaii. Then taking a break, he took a fateful job in Guam. In 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor was bombed, he was captured by the invading Japanese army and spent the entire war in various civilian internment camps in Japan. Fortunately, at some point, a guard loaned him a copy of R.H. Blythe's Zen in English Literature and the Oriental Classics. Fascinated by this book, Robert reread it so many times the guard became afraid that he'd break its spine <coughs> and so reclaimed it. But through a fateful coincidence, he and Blythe himself were transferred to the same camp, and Robert took advantage of this opportunity to start the intellectual aspect of what was to become a formidable Zen training. After the war, he returned to Hawaii and completed his undergraduate degree in English literature, and then moved to California, where he met Nyogen Sensaki, the itinerant Zen teacher who was leading his, quote, floating Zendo 
in various rented venues up and down the California coast. Senzaki gave Robert the Dharma name Chotan, which means deep pool, and introduced him to koan study. He returned to Hawaii, where in 1950 he earned a master's degree in Japanese studies. And the year before, he helped put out the East-West Philosophers Conference, at which he met and began what would be a lifelong friendship with D.T. Suzuki. And in 1950, he made his first visit to, to Japan since his time as a prisoner of war and began studying with Rinzai master Soen Nakagawa Roshi. <clears throat> After traveling for a time between Hawaii and California, during which time he married and divorced, Robert landed a job teaching at Jiddu Krishnamurti's Happy Valley School in Ojai. And there he met Anne Hopkins. They married and traveled together to Japan for their honeymoon. And while there, he sat with Soen Roshi and met Yasutani Roshi. And in 1958, when Soen Roshi came to California, Robert served as the teacher's jisha or attendant. He had his first intimation of what Zen is about during a sashin in 1961, but his teacher, Soen Roshi, was reluctant to confirm it as more than a little light. His deeper understanding was eventually confirmed by Soen Roshi in 1971, long after he had been successfully engaging in koan study and demonstrating his abilities as a teacher in his own right. This is very important that uh, people's first insight is only, uh, this is a path, a progress, a process, and um, it's important to realize that people in senior positions or even teachers are, are developing, are uh, hopefully um, continuing to um, investigate and become more complete uh, humans. Over time, Aitken worked with a number of teachers, but his principal guides were Yasutani Roshi and then Koun Yamada Roshi. And in 1974, Yamada Roshi confirmed Dharma transmission on Aitken. Hesitant to accept the responsibility and unsure of himself in many ways, he traveled to California where he spent some time reviewing koans and deepening his insight with Mayazumi Roshi. In 1959, he and Anne established the Coco and Zendo. This was the nucleus of what would become the Diamond Sangha Network, with centers on several Hawaiian islands, California, Arizona, Texas, Washington State, Germany, Argentina, Australia, and New Zealand. <clears throat> In Australia, he worked with a senior student in Dharma Edge on Tarrant, and that is one of the biggest Zen communities now in Down Under. He also, and this is important, became one of Western Zen's foremost social justice activists. He was a founder with another of his senior students, Nelson Foster, um, of the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So this is an interesting point that uh, at this moment in time when we're dealing with racism and so many things, 
Uh, there is a call for us to show up, a call to action that we can embrace within our, our Zen practice. Uh, he, he died on August the 5th, 2010, and um, the Diamond Sangha to this day continues, led by Nelson Foster, who's a Roshi now. And um, yeah, that's, that's the story of Robert Aitken. And it is a story that includes a lot of suffering, a lot of learning. Um, he did say in one of his books that he was very diffident about putting himself forward. And his, he did some therapy, which is always recommended for anybody presuming to teach. Um, and his teacher, his therapist, made him go to a restaurant and complain about his soup. <laughs> and he absolutely had such a hard time. Uh, I think he was told to say there was a fly in his soup or something, and he really, it, he suffered agonies trying to do this. So this gives you a sense of the man. Anyway, back to the book. Kashanti, translated <clears throat> as forbearance and endurance, is the third paramita. This is not merely control of impatience, but the virtue that appears in the absence of hatred, repugnance, and malice. And you could say virtue is, how is virtue? Virtue is maybe grace, integrity, uprightness. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, like the other paramitas, it's an attitude that arises from bodhicitta. So it might be helpful to just say, what, what is bodhicitta? We hear the word, but as I said, in Zen we don't delve much into the you know, Buddhist teachings on a regular basis. So bodhicitta is the desire to awaken to the mind of wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings. The critical thing being the benefit of all beings. Uh, the Dalai Lama referred to it as the precious awakening mind which cherishes other sentient beings more than oneself. It's the pillar of the bodhisattvic practice, and it's priceless. Pema Chodron, another favorite of <coughs> people on the Zen path, excuse me, <coughs> perhaps this the simplest answer is that it lifts us out of self-centeredness and self-concern and gives us a chance to leave dysfunctional habits behind. Moreover, everything we encounter becomes an opportunity to develop the outrageous courage of the Bodhi heart. Kashanti has three aspects, gentle forbearance, endurance of hardship, and acceptance of truth. Gentle forbearance is the spirit of forgiveness where injury is forgiven and the occasion is used as an opportunity to reveal the essential harmony of all beings. There are no exceptional circumstances that would justify other kinds of responses. Now that's a very high order and we're talking about bodhisattvas here. The bodhisattva remembers the Buddha's words 
One of the strengths of a religious teacher is in his patience. You might say waiting, waiting for, waiting for the answer, waiting for the response, not jumping in the first time that we have an opportunity. Goes on. In Chinese, the ideograph for Kashanti is formed with a sword over the heart. This emphasizes the paramita as endurance of hardship. So it's important then we see this word forbearance and no one is saying that this means that you should put up with abuse and do nothing about it. I want, we want to make that really clear. Um, but it has this sword in it, the patience to endure, the um, ability to handle things, to, to go through distress and pain um, and so forth. He goes on, we live even in our most joyous moments <clears throat> with the sword of Damocles hanging above us by a single hair. The picture of our companion is on our altar as we hold our memorial service. He must have been having a memorial service when he gave this talk. Last year, last month, <clears throat> we had no idea that our friend would disappear into a photograph. You and I, too, will disappear into photographs soon enough. The full acceptance of this fact of life is Kashanti. And I think of a uh, former Sangha member, Sonam Tarji, who died from ALS just maybe a month and a half ago. Um, heard yesterday the husband of a former member here who'd been one of our longest members. He died and his ashes will be scattered at Chapin Mill, joining those of Irene, his, uh, his wife, who died maybe five years ago. So. It's uh, an important uh, reminder that this uncertainty, uh, it stalks us, even at a very basic level. Not only life is short, it's also hard. And he says, here is the response the poet Basho had to hardship. He has taken shelter <clears throat> during a storm in the rude dwelling of a frontier guard while he's on pilgrimage. This is his haiku. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. And that really takes us to things as they are. When we fight reality, we lose every time. But it's really hard for us to accept what, what is in front of us, the hardships, the, we want it to go away. Um, and it's, it's this sleeping with the fleas, the lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. I'm sure we could all, if we had um, a class action, I mean, if this was a if we were in college or something, then we would all have to make up a haiku that resonates for us to fleas and lice <clears throat> and the horse pissing in the pillow. 
This, of course, leads us to suffering. And I go back to Aitken here. Accepting things the way they are. This is the fulfillment of Kashanti and the fulfillment of Buddha's basic teaching. Dukkha, Dukkha, all is Dukkha. And he went on to teach the way of liberation from Dukkha. Usually Dukkha is translated as suffering, but it's an ambiguous word that can also mean permission. Suffer the little children to come unto me, Jesus said. Let them come. Let it happen. Suffering is what Basho experienced, but they were not looking for liberation from it at all. The priest Isan Dorsey said, to have AIDS is to be alive. The whole world is sick, the whole world suffers, and its beings are constantly dying. Dukkha, on the other hand, is resistance to suffering. It is the anguish we feel when we don't want to suffer. The Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as the liberation from this anguish of futile self-protection. And in this release, we find the ultimate wisdom. You could say, we try to escape what really can't be escaped. So, rather, uh, we want to open to what's here, what's happening, and the truth of the situation. And it, avoid, it involves the acceptance of unavoidable pain. And when I was talking uh, with my, or at least write, uh, emailing with my daughter about this forbearance, um, she reminded me that it's an important aspect to have this um, self-forbearance too, you know. It's not just directed to bearing what's out there. It's what's inside us. What do we do if we don't practice for, for, forbearance for ourselves? What happens? Self-denigration, um, anxiety, all kinds of pain. So uh, this aspect of generosity and forbearance needs to be extended definitely to ourselves as well. And patience is necessary because uh, it takes uh, it takes time for the truest and most helpful response to come forward to appear. It, it, it's um, all the best responses are rooted in awareness and love. And awareness really is it's our true nature. It's the fundamental mind. Staying in it is not so easy. And uh, Bodhidharma had a good thing to say about this, about awareness. Buddha is Sanskrit for what you call aware, miraculously aware, responding, perceiving, arching your brows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. It's all your miraculously aware nature. 
It's, it's with us all the time. And if we can respond out of it, it is love as well. And we connect to it through our zazen, through our practice. We could say listening is another vital uh, aspect which allows us the possibility of correcting our misunderstandings about things. How often do we assume something was said? Oh, definitely he meant that or she meant that. Um, And we go into the narrative that is often a very repetitive story for us, but by listening patience, we allow the possibility of correcting or having those corrections come into play. Uh, Roshi Kaplow always used to say, don't make assumptions. One of our Sangha members who is on the Zen of Living and Dying uh, was telling me last week a very wonderful, courageous um, expression of what they've been going through in that she said about some ongoing struggles with family and so forth, I'm realizing that it's not going to change. And it wasn't said in any way of just, oh... Oh, you know, it's not going to change. How terrible. It was like, it was an insight into the reality. She didn't have to take responsibility for what the other person was doing or saying or acting. She could just see it the way it was. So what happens if we don't practice forbearance? We react, we have regrets. Who doesn't have regrets? Destruction, ultimately, it leads to war. And I think about parenting, you know, it's such a difficult task and such a wonderful task, but it's so hard to um, not react, to allow things to be, because we feel responsible. I have to change this. This is my deal. No, sometimes we just have to see things the way they are and let them be. Martial arts uh, has something to teach us in in this regard. Um, The first movement in a martial art is somebody comes at you, you block. You don't punch, you don't hit, you block. And then you might use the energy of that person as a way of deflecting this energy. We do it with our kids too, you know. We know how to, how to deflect, but with compassion, with, with not, mm, not gritted teeth and, uh, and anger. Uh, so we can use this... Um, this wonderful ability to to let things be. 
I really would like that people might have a chance to talk about forbearance. Um, so uh, I think I'm going to not go on too much longer. Um, definitely I mean this is a plug for practice of course you know it's 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 what we can it's the thing that will help us to have this space um, and I think I'll just close in the words of the Beatles song you know Popular music has so much to teach us. All the anguish and thing that comes out in that. Why do why do we love to listen to it? You know, it's and it's different strokes for different folks. But music speaks to the heart. Uh, it, it, yeah. So here are the words. I, I'll spare you the song. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, Let it be, and when the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance that they will see, there will be an answer, let it be. And when the night is cloudy, there is, there is, still a light that shines on me, let it be. So, this is happy to take any comments, talks, um, reflections on forbearance. <clears throat> yeah, I do just want to mention that uh, that people online, they do have an opportunity to ask a question or make a comment. Uh, just write it in the, the chat box and send it to everyone, and I'll pick it up, and I'll, I'll read it on their behalf if there's anything, but we'll open it up to the people in the Zendo. Errol, it's very moving and wonderful to hear hear what you said. Thank you. In this, in this deep practice and how how can we just increase our practice, what you call it the bodhicitta, just moving ever, ever opening to the present without, without yeah. love. Yeah. Thank you, James. Um, it's Juneteenth, and our hearts go out to all the suffering, really, 
Um, and I will make a plug here. There is um, the Uprooting Racism group is showing, it's live streaming this week, a documentary called White Right. Um, it's, done, it's a documentary made by a Muslim woman. She's a brown person, as she would identify herself. And she meets with all of these uh, extreme right-wing leaders of movements like the National Socialist Movement, um, the uh, skinheads, the neo-Nazis. And she meets with these leaders and she's in dialogue with them. And as she's talking to them and asking very muted questions, you watch the expressions on their faces as they try to rationalize um, she says, well, I'm a Muslim, so you would kick me out, right, in your vision of, white, of a white society. And he says, well, um, I like you. I'm a, I consider you a friend, so I wouldn't want to do that. And she said, but really, if, if it's your ideology, would you kick me out? And he says, yes, I would. But, I don't want to spoil the movie, but... At the end, he changes. And as he's struggling to answer her, she asks him a question, and he's, you see his face kind of contorted, and he says, um, there are too many questions. Um, I'm beginning to wander. I'm wandering. And he couldn't answer. And so, and this is the same thing happens with the next person who's, who hates Jews and has... He's busy there making flyers that he can throw into the synagogue, you know. And, um, and then he says, and I've thought about doing it with the Muslims too, getting some pig heads and throwing them around the mosque. But he said the funny thing is that when his girlfriend was sick in the hospital, the only person who came to see her was a Muslim. He said, so I don't think I'll be putting the pig heads there anymore. But this is, you know, the forbearance dialogue is, is all in this. It's really worth watching, and especially for white people, because um, we so look at the, you know, we re react to the, or we respond to what's happening in the, in the black or brown communities, but it's our own burden. The scary thing about this movie, though, is when you get to the elites on the far right, they're the ones who are in there in the equanimity of indifference. You know, they've put it aside. Other, you know. I mean, Buddhism is an amazing teaching, you know. It's all one. Oh, it's just uh, un unreal. Thank you, James. Oh, before Scott begins, uh, Errol, if you could, once Scott asks this question, if you could repeat it. So oh, I will. Okay. Yes, Scott. Something I've always uh, found uh, to be a difficult question regarding forbearance is how to uh, how to distinguish between you you mentioned uh, actual abuse how to distinguish between a situation where someone else or even oneself is truly being abused where you should really push back as much as you can versus mm -hmm. a situation where it's best 
just simply to accept what's there and, and, and deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I often uh, have found over the years uh, a, a very difficult question to separate those two things. Yeah, so um, Scott is asking the question of when somebody's really being abusive and how, what is the, you know, the response is, well, how does forbearance come in, into that? Um, yeah, it's a very good question. How and distinguish yeah, how do you distinguish? But, but there can be forbearance even in appropriate response to that. You know, it's not that you therefore sit there and say, oh yeah, you know, do whatever. But you have the space to to know what is the the answer comes to you because you aren't just reacting. And of course, you know, therapy. Anyone else want to jump in on that, Wayman? Uh, on that answer? I was just wondering why Arrow has become such an expert at forbearance. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to answer? Yes, yeah, please no, do. I actually find that question really fascinating, and maybe... Can you, you speak up a little, oh. just because of the people online? The forbearance could be afforded to yourself. Yes. What you've endured, and understanding that that needs to change, and it's going to be hard. I hear that back here. Uh, the forbearance is for yourself, and not for the other person necessarily, so that you could work through yeah, that's, what you've been... Yes putting up with. <laughs> I don't know how to, yeah. I, mean, I think that's tricky. absolutely yeah. critical. That's it. Um, and that was what my daughter, because she's a contemporary of yours, she said too, you know, don't forget that it's forbearance for yourself is the, you know, the healing part. But it's hard to do, right? So how do you do it? Yeah, you just you have to make a hard look at yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and what you've put up with because you feel you don't deserve something better. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. coming to terms with that and then being assertive, whether you need to disentangle with someone abusive or, you know, you need help asking for that help to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. hopefully having community and support in order to extract you if it's dangerous. Yeah. Does forbearance help you in this then? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else want to respond to that? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I Desiree, Desiree first and then, then uh, um, Deb. When Scott asked, so when do you push back or not, my first reaction was rather it's a question of from where you push back. Do you push back out of a place of hate and anger or push mm. back out of a place of love? Because standing up for yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you do it because you're angry or hate, but because you love yourself as much as the other. And the other who does the abuse is probably in as much pain as you are at that very moment. So when you push back and state your ground and it comes from a place of deep love, it may be a different thing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I would agree, but just dovetailing a little bit, you can protect yourself and be assertive, but also loving by just reflecting back to the person how their behavior makes you feel. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you know, like I had to do this a lot with mental patients, you know, because a lot of times they don't intend to be abusive. They're just they're just intrusive. They they're in desperate situations, you know, and they use language that may be very offensive or they may appear threatening even. And just pointing that out to them will help them stand back. And but that, I found that that's true with with other situations as well. Mm -hmm. um, pointing out, right now you're making me feel very uncomfortable mm -hmm. because of what you said or how you're behaving or whatever. And, and sometimes they're just not aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously that's less the case in very intimate relationships where people know each other well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, that sounds like a kind of, kind of judo <laughs> oh, really? That's it works because it's just turning around something, not pushing against, but using it, that force to yes. turn it around. Right. I would like to say at this point that in preparing for this this talk, um, Wayman has been the the back the background check and also the uh, offered much of the insight too. So I just want to recognize that. Oh, baloney. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Mitchell. Carol, can you speak for a moment on the relationship between Kashanti and compassion, self-compassion and other I think it goes back for me to this equanimity thing where looking at the near enemy of indifference, the far enemy of um, anxiety and restlessness and self-concern, and then the other Brahma-Vihara, which is, you know, a compassion. Um, the far enemy of compassion is what? cruelty. The near enemy is pity. So in being compassionate towards ourselves, we have to be very aware of the near enemy of pity, of feeling, of allowing the self-criticism and the self feeling sorry for ourselves. That sounds so cruel when I say it like that, but it's not meant that way. It's just to be very aware of how the self gets tangled up in all of this. Um, and, um, and of course, when you're talking about the self, the far enemy of it is cruelty. And so you can be cruel to yourself as well. Um, maybe you can answer the question. I, I, or somebody else can answer the question more uh, deeply than, than that. Um, any takers? Yeah. <laughs> Dwayne. Uh, I sat here on this mat the evening before I was to go to jail for uh, protesting. And uh, all of my anger boiled up. All of uh, all of the 
pain that I felt like I was about to face boiled up. And uh, in the midst of that, from somewhere, some grace, it was a deep compassion for myself, for my own suffering, for my wish to be beyond suffering, for my wish to obliterate it for other people. And in Experiencing that deep, deep compassion for myself, I found compassion for others. And it seemed to me axiomatic for myself that I couldn't have compassion for anyone if I didn't have compassion for my own self. I think that's incredibly important, Duane. We have to love ourselves before we can love others, you know, but it's tough. This is a society that doesn't uh, nurture self-love, really. Um, we're always, we're a society of winners. Me first, you know, gold medals. It's not silver medals or bronze medals. No, 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 the gold medal is it, you know, so it's um, it's a very important thing. I think our younger generation. Are there any here? Yes. <laughs> if you were born after 1980, you're considered young. But um, <laughs> take off 40 years. Um, but I think this young generation, those of you who have children who are in their teens and their 20s, um, they feel this. And it's, uh, they have the openness to, at this point, experience it. Look at the response to school shootings, how the anguish of our children. So, uh, yeah, as practitioners, we, we need to support this. Okay. Um, Desiree, you had something? No? Done? <laughs> Are there any others? Yes, go I ahead, Jerry. Think, uh, this is Jerry Dart. Yeah, Jerry here. <laughs> For me, uh, and it's kind of an experiential thing, is that uh, I had to face all my suffering before I started to recognize it in others. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it wasn't easy, because it really, to kind of piggyback on playing there, was that uh, uh, the anger I had and the, uh, uh, oh gosh, it's just a whole bunch of feelings that I never recognized in myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I kind of came through it, and trust me, it was not easy. Uh, when I came through it, I really started to open up more. And I, I and in that, I, I, for me, compassion is a kind of selflessness to get beyond uh, this, this, uh, an ego that I have, uh, 
so, but it, it, after I get through that, I really recognize now the, the, what the suffering really means. It's not just me, it's everybody. Everybody in this room, mm -hmm. uh, everybody outside this room, we're all in it. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and this is where the practice has really helped me, too. You know, that's, yeah, I'm still opening up. <laughs> it's crazy, but I no. Hopefully, you will till you're. And you know, the other thing is the willingness to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I heard a thing this morning that just really struck me: that we are taught to be vulnerable is to be is shame. The vulnerability is shame, but it's not. No. Um, discovering that the willingness to be vulnerable is really the key. Because um, uh, along that same line, I learned that uh, uh, I don't er, er, learn anything if I'm not, you know, not vulnerable. I got to be vulnerable to learn and to experience. Really, that's really what it comes from: is experience. Yeah. Thank uh, you. And there, there's a somehow that brings up the forbearance thing for me as well. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, this is only one of the ten paramitas. So, you, if you took every paramita, you would plumb the depths of this. You know, turtles all the way down, or hippos all the way down, whatever it is. It's, um, you know, it's so, so important. Uh, yeah. Well, I think. Am I getting a message that Wayman it's? Oh, Wayman, so sorry. Shall we make Wayman the last one, the last word? <laughs> it would be what Jerry's talking about is the willingness, the willingness to feel pain without striking back. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That might be worth repeating. Yeah. And, uh, uh, w the final word was was from Wayman after Jerry had talked about the need for vulnerability and. Um, it wasn't until he was willing to experience all of his suffering that it opened it up for him to be able to uh, have that um, love and compassion for, for others as well. So Wayman's final word was? The willingness to feel pain without striking back. The willingness to feel pain without striking back. And we'll stop here now and recite the four vows.